0: This is the Bill Kelly Show
1: podcast. Interesting program announced the other day by the provincial government. uh, And it has to do with uh, making naloxone kits available to police services in the community uh, at their cost. Not just you, me, which is not going to be on taxpayers' cost. Hamilton Police Services are not uh, really rushing to the front here to be part of this program. Uh, We've talked to Chief Eric Gert about this, and he says he has some concerns and some trepidation about that, and they've not yet moved forward on that. That is not the opinion shared by everybody with Hamilton Police Services, though. Uh, they are not going to be committing to sending frontline officers not with naloxone kits, not yet anyway. But uh, there are people within the Police Association that think that this is something that we should be doing. Clint Twolin is the president of the Hamilton Police Association, and he joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Clint, good morning. How are you doing today?
2: Good morning. I'm doing well.
1: I got to I got to tell you I'm I'm a little befuddled by by the police service's response to this. Uh give us your take on on what the province is proposing and 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 your association's uh, read on this.
2: Well, it's something that we've been pushing for uh for some time now and we have been prov- uh pushing on a provincial level. Uh the PAO itself has been uh in talks with the provincial government and 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 certainly putting our case forward uh I think it's a great announcement. I've said it in the past that this shouldn't fall on the shoulders of municipal taxpayers and uh and that seems to be the direction that the province is going in. And I'll be honest as well, I think that this is a federal problem. I think that the federal government should get involved and and start uh, sharing this cost rather than the the, the, the uh, you know the taxpayers in cities like Hamilton.
1: But the province has made an announcement, but they've made it optional. What do you think of that? Well, it,
2: it, that's an interesting take on it, and I'm hoping that uh, after some review, uh, in particular the Hamilton Police Service Chief Gert will uh, move forward with the naloxone kits. I mean, we uh, we certainly view it as uh, a protection for our members, but I've said it in the past as well that I believe that this is a protection for the citizens that we serve as well. Um, you know, in any case where we're um, we're sent to a call where somebody is suffering or somebody's in medical distress, we want to do everything we can to help those people.
1: And let's let's talk about that. And my understanding, by the way, and I'm I'm sure you can confirm this for me, is that uh, Hamilton firefighters actually have these kits on some of the units that they send out, j- in case they run into something like this during a response.
2: Yes, I, I mean it's my understanding, and you'd have to speak to them directly that it is for personal use. But again. Uh, I'm I'm very confident, knowing the 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 great work that the Hamil or the Hamilton Fire Department does, that they would take all steps to help anybody in need and use those kits if required. So, I mean, it, it's it's uh, you know the Hamilton EMS have them and Hamilton Fire. I think it's just a logical step that that we
1: moved getting them. Clint, I'd like you to spend a couple of minutes explaining to our listeners the concern that your association has, uh, and by that I mean the 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 dilemma that your officers are facing. Uh just going out on a job. I mean, obviously we know about the risks involved and that are inherent with the job to begin with. But with fentanyl and, and with the abuse of fentanyl and with what's happening on the streets these days, uh this is not just a matter of risk to, to people that may be users. This is a risk to the officers themselves sometimes. Absolutely. And and
2: fentanyl is a new problem for us. Uh you know, the potency is so much uh more than and significantly more. say a drug like heroin and it's also you know as far as detection goes it's very very hard to detect it they say that is you know as few as eight or nine grains can cause an uh, overdose so it's something that you know when our officers come on scene and come into contact with these drugs uh, sometimes Y- you know, you, you don't get the heads up. You don't know what you're getting into and we become more reactive. We've been very fortunate, knock on wood, uh, so far in Hamilton, but I'll tell you it goes beyond that as well. When you bring these uh, these uh, people, um, and I'm not talking about overdose people, when you're talking about people that you bring into custody, it's uh, our civilians who also have the potential to come into contact with these drugs. So it, it, it's not something that uh, that we're familiar with and uh, like everything else, we evolve and we learn how to deal with it. But uh, once again, I think that this is one of those steps that we have to take to protect ourselves and, and again, members of the public.
1: Well, it's, again, and I'm, I know it's not an apples-to-apples apples comparison necessarily, but, I mean, 15, 20 years ago, I mean, officers or first responders never used rubber gloves when they came onto a scene. They, they know better now simply because of the risk of infection or any number of different things that can happen.
2: Yes, and in fact, um, we have moved... Uh, from a service perspective, into using better rubber gloves to to to, to help combat these types of issues uh, you know I, and i don 't have the exact statistics or the actual you know spec- uh, specifications on the gloves, but we 've moved to a thicker model of glove to help protect us so we're we 're very wary of of these risks uh, and again, the problem is drugs like fentanyl and and when we get into math and those types of things. The, the risks that they pose to our frontline officers, they're, they're, they're significant risks, and it's my opinion. And, uh, and I know that most of our members share this opinion that uh, we want to just make sure that we have all of the tools at hand uh, to make sure that we can mitigate those risks.
1: Have you had a discussion with, uh, with the, the police about this?
2: Well this announcement actually um is relatively new uh, we have had discussions in the past because i uh to a point i do agree with uh, chief gert on on the risks that come from uh from um um you know, from a legal perspective, I guess you'd say, uh, we in in Ontario are subject to investigations by the Special Investigations Unit. They mm-hmm. investigate potential criminal behavior. They have made it clear that uh, uh, they will investigate officers who are involved with uh, um, deaths uh, involving drugs and if naloxone or, or a similar product is used. Uh, we will be, as police officers, investigated for those criminally. Um, And I know that, uh, I believe it's in B.C., the IIO, which is their oversight body, has agreed that uh, overdose um, victims in an opioid uh, environment, they will not investigate those. So, you know, there are um, issues, legalities, that we have to deal with as well, and there is some level of risk as far as us going out and administering drugs to people and that's basically uh, what Naloxone is, uh, how that ends up playing out in the long run when, when things don't go as we plan.
1: Well, it sort of sounds like the province is rolling this program out and they haven't really done all their homework on this. I mean, that's that aspect of it that you've just described right now seems like something the Attorney General's office needs to address.
2: Yes, well, I mean, as you know, the Safe, uh, Safe Ontario Act has come out and... One of the key things on that uh, um that's a that's a topic for another day is oversight. That was one of the, the, the biggest issues on that on that um agenda. And mm-hmm. this again is uh one of the problems that you know that we and I'm sure the chief um can see as well, that it brings us into more liability issues when we start administering these things. Like don't get me wrong, uh in when we do our blog training, which is done yearly, we're we're given first aid training. We're we're taught how to use things like um Um, well, everything from d machines to administering um, different types of first aid. So, you know, this is not new for us. It's just how do we properly uh, protect ourselves, uh, you know, as an organization to make sure that we cross our T's and dot our I's.
1: But with all those other treatments you've talked about, I mean, we've heard those stories anecdotally about... Police officers delivering babies, police officers, uh, as you say, uh, you know, applying CPR, things of this nature. What, what kind of protections are in place currently now uh, for officers that do decide to take those initiatives to try to save a life?
2: Well, it's more of a, um, I'm going to say, of a, a common law type of an approach, right? We're expected as police officers to do everything we can to help protect the public to save lives. And so as long as you're acting in good faith and you're doing what you believe is right... And and it's in in line with your your training, then we are protected. Um, but again, this is a this is a new situation where we're looking at uh, somebody who may have overdosed and who is VSA vital sa- signs absent at that particular time, and we're starting to administer uh, medication drugs. However, you want to you know however you want to um explain it um you know this this opens the door to a, a new realm that we're still trying to deal with and, and again i go back to the siu issue um you know how how is that going to play out in the long run where it's seen that uh, we've administered a drug uh and what role did that play in in the overall outcome
1: what about the other uh, first responders that we've talked about? And I know that, that that's not your wheelhouse. I mean, but you know, when we talk about paramedics and and firefighters who do have these things uh, and have the ability to use them, I guess, given certain circumstances, right now, uh, do they have that protection, or are they under the same cloud that you are right now as to whether or not this is the right thing to do?
2: Well, I believe that they'd be, have at least a similar protection um, that that that, w- that would make sure that. Uh, you know, as long as they're doing what they believe is right and in line with their training, our problem as police officers is the oversight. Like I said, um, the you know the fire departments and the paramedics don't have that same level of oversight. And again, it's it's not it's not uh, uh, you know a fear mongering type of an approach that I'm I'm suggesting. I'm just saying that from a legal perspective, from a liability perspective, these are the things that the chief of police is going to have to take into consideration before he rolls out a uh, naloxone an program.
1: And, and frankly, I can sh- I can see the concern that you've got here, Clint. Uh, you and I talked a couple of weeks ago about the revised regulations from the AG's office about oversight with police services here in the province of Ontario, and it actually looks like they've added more layers to it uh, than they had previously, which is-, is makes it a little more complex. And and it is what it is, and I guess you're going to have to live with that. But the fact is, is you don't want an officer second-guessing in a situation like this, should I do this or shouldn't I, because you're talking about a human life here, maybe even his or hers.
2: Well, his or hers, and again, the one thing that we do know is, is time counts. And uh, the ability to administer that first dose or second dose of naloxone somebody who's overdosed is critical and i'll tell you i mean we've seen many a report about the ems here in the city and in their understaffing and their code zero calls and um you know yes uh, i mean i've heard uh, and spoken to the chief about the fact that um you know it's up to the paramedics we we see ourselves as a support to paramedics when it comes to medical distress calls but with that being said uh, they may not be there in every set of circumstances. There may be uh, times when it's going to take them a little bit of time. And if we can bridge that gap, if you will, to, to get uh, a patient, including one of uh, you know, my members, to make sure that they are, they are safe until uh, proper medical um, treatment can, can happen, then that's something I think that we should do.
1: And we should mention, uh, for those who may not know, I mean, naloxone is not a a cure for an overdose. It's really a stopgap measure. It it buys some time for that person to to get the proper care that they need. But that may well be, as you mentioned, Clint, in a situation where seconds count, the difference between life and death.
2: Absolutely. And, um, I mean, we are, I mean, I know that uh, there's discussion right now and approval for a, um, for a safe injection site it's a harm reduction type of an approach and um, I'm not likening it to that per se but what I'm saying is that you know we have to put systems in place to make sure that we can at least reduce the risk Uh, we're not going to stop it that's um, you know uh, we can't be everywhere uh, at every point in time so but if we have the tools to be able to at least mitigate those those risks then I think that that's what we should do
1: are there uh, police services in other parts of the province that have jumped onto this program because well, they obviously would have the same concerns you do. Well, absolutely. I mean, there are police services that are administering
2: or issuing the uh, naloxone kits to their members right now. Um, it, it comes at a cost. I, I estimate for the city of Hamilton, I think a startup cost would somewhere or were, were, sorry would be somewhere in the neighborhood of fifty thousand dollars. And I'm just just based on the number of officers we have and the cost of the kits. Uh, there have been others who have rolled it out, but again, this, this announcement uh, is is just a couple of days old. And on top of that, uh, they haven't rolled out exactly how they're going to do the distribution, how they are going to, or the timelines, um, and what, what this is going to look like uh, from a provincial standpoint as well. So those details still have
1: to be ironed out. Is this fixable? I mean, you've got some concerns, and Chief Gert has some concerns, and, and it sounds like in some areas here you guys are on the same page. Uh, can can you have those discussions with the attorney general's office and try to smooth this out? I think so,
2: and and I know that the the president of the PAO has been in discussions with uh, with the lo- or the provincial government on this, and they're going to continue to to push and to to look t- to to address some of the other issues. Um, so I I absolutely think it's fixable. And again, I I I would commend Chief Gert for his you know his. I'm going to say conservative approach to make sure that we're we're mitigating those risks against uh, our organization as far as a police service goes, but the city of Hamilton as well. I think it's important that uh, we have a good idea of um, of what what this means exactly from a, a liability standpoint, uh, from a cost perspective, because there will be costs associated with it. You're going to have to have some type of training. You're going to have to have somebody who um, takes care of uh you know the distribution the ordering the the uh, reordering all those you know those 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 jobs that have to be uh associated with the kits themselves so i, I you know i uh, i just hope that whatever uh steps the chief takes that uh, they're somewhat expedited to make sure that our officers and our civilians are protected.
1: Well, this is not the first time that a government's made an announcement about stuff and says, oh yeah, details, we'll figure those things out later on. And you're kind of caught between a rock and a hard place here, aren't you?
2: Oh, absolutely. We're still at the the mercy of the provincial government. Um, We will, obviously, like I said, we'll push. But I think with the numbers that are coming out, the number of overdoses and the number of deaths uh, related to opioids, I think that this is something that they're going to have to expedite as well. They've they've made the announcement. Um, you know, every every day that goes by, uh, there are people who are overdosing and who are dying from those overdoses. So I think that you know them dragging their feet at this point wouldn't make a lot of sense. And we'll make sure that from a provincial standpoint that we'll push on that.
1: Clint, thanks as always for the update on this. We'll stay in touch and hopefully get this thing worked out. Well, great. Uh, thanks for having me. Take care. Clint Twollett, of course, President of Hamilton Police Association. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900
0: CHML.
1: Well, as uh, we continue to monitor what's going on in the Middle East right now, with the uh, response to the Donald Trump announcement about Jerusalem earlier this week. And uh, Jeff Semple from Global News, by the way, is in Jerusalem and uh, reports that, yeah, there are some skirmishes that are starting now. This is a prayer day, of course. Uh, in the Muslim world, and uh, there was some concern that maybe things would ramp up a little bit. We'll certainly keep an eye on that. But what about the international reaction to Trump's announcement earlier this week? Uh, some world leaders were quick to jump all over Trump as a result of this. Obviously, in, in Israel, Netanyahu are very supportive of this. The Canadian action reaction was, uh, well, puzzling in many people's minds. Tim Harper, freelance writer and editor, writes about this. It's in the Toronto Star today. Liberal caution, risk causing Canada a voice in the Middle East. And Tim Harper joins us on the Bill Keller Show to talk about this morning. Tim, how are you doing today? I'm
0: very good, Bill. How are you?
1: Good. Uh, listen, the, the most instructive piece, it's a great piece, by the way, that you wrote, uh, but uh, the, you, you were very helpful in, in providing with us this, uh, this sliding scale of diplomatic words. Now, you've been up in Ottawa for a long time, and you, you, you know this stuff, and I, I love how you apply what, what has gone on here to how the Trudeau government responded to this.
0: Well, it used to be, uh, this is a couple, uh, I'll date myself, it's a few governments ago, uh, but there was i uh, I know because I knew people quite well uh, uh, in the department there there was a kind of a running joke about the the words uh, to be used uh to show our diplomatic umbrage with whatever real or imagined atrocity was going on somewhere and it would usually start out that we were closely monitoring the situation and then uh well you know we could get up to disappointment and then dismay dismayed very dismayed and then um uh, you know, look out world. Where we're uh, now, we're going to condemn what's going on. Um, <laughs> that uh, that sliding scale uh, there. The the Trudeau Liberals never even got up the uh, the ladder to disappointment in, in <laughs> reaction to this. And I I think it puzzled. Uh, I mean, I don't. I understand the politics behind it, but um, I think it did puzzle some uh, observers in Ottawa
1: well and there's there's obviously there's a story behind that as well and and, as you mentioned, you can't look at things in isolation here, and there's a lot going on in Canada and the u s at this time, but at the same time, something as extreme as this, which uh, I think just about everybody and I'm sure Justin Trudeau has to be counted in that number, understands what the ramifications could be you You'd think that there'd be a little more passion in the response
0: yeah, you would um you would think that there also might be a mention of the United States or Donald Trump, and there was neither um in a statement from uh, the Global uh, Affairs Minister Christian Freeland, uh, an answer in a scrum from China from Justin Trudeau, and then yesterday when it was raised in the House of Commons, uh, the Heritage Minister of all people, got, Melanie Jolie, got up and just uh, repeated the same two-paragraph statement, which is just a reiteration of the, uh, the Canadian policy, uh, You know, starting with we're great friends with, uh... israel were great friends with the palestinians and jerusalem has to be settled as part of its two-state solution that's fine uh... but it did not go anywhere near uh... most of the reaction you heard around
1: the world well and there uh, lies the frustration i think i mean the you know, the, the most hard-hitting thing that minister jolie said this week was you can't have cell phones at the ice rink on parliament hill <laughs> uh, but on this issue they're pretty benign
0: they are look look bill let's be blunt you and i know this this is No picnic uh, dealing with Donald Trump uh, when you're a neighbor. When you're uh, involved in um, uh, NAFTA talks that uh, are right now going nowhere, so you don't want to poke them. uh, But you know, I've written about this before. uh, They, uh, the the sort of uh, they, they won't take the gloves off when it comes to softwood lumber or the uh, uh, aerospace industry or. Uh, you know a- any of this stuff coming south of the border? So, yeah, I get you don't want to poke the guy, uh, and it's easier to take shots from across the ocean. But in this case, I actually think that um, if you you're, you're always walking on eggshells in reacting to the president to the south, you risk losing um, credibility uh, in the region because the the, the benign uh, milk toast. Canadian reaction will be noticed over there. Uh, And it really does look, um, uh, uh, Trudeau was asked in China whether he would uh, call Trump to uh, tell him that we disapprove of this, and he he wouldn't go anywhere near the question. He just uh, reiterated our policy and and the obvious fact that we're not going to move our embassy from uh, Tel Aviv to Jerusalem.
1: Well, uh, let's face it, the Prime Minister wasn't having a very good week in China anyway, so I don't know if he was uh, being uh, uh, very effusive about anything as he sat there and talked about this. Uh, There's so many other things that that, uh, they were were talking about in situations like this. But, you know, this is art imitating life, I suppose. It kind of reminded me of that scene in the movie Love Actually, you know, where the Prime Minister Hugh Grant uh, is supposed to stand up to Billy Bob Thornton, the U.S. president, and his staff are saying, come on, grow a backbone. And, And I think that's what some people are asking of the Prime Minister at this stage.
0: Uh, it's interesting you mentioned backbone because the uh, new Democrats in the, the House yesterday referred to the, the reaction as spineless. Um, it's a, I think, generally speaking, the uh, Trudeau liberals have handled the Trump administration quite well, um, so I don't want to be too critical of them uh, across the board. But I think there are times when you have to, uh, uh, instead of reiterating uh, your policy, you have to actually... Stand up and say this decision that was made in Washington is the wrong decision, uh, that it's counterproductive to uh, any uh, peace process, that it's dangerous, that it's reckless, that it could foment violence that we're seeing. Um, but, you know, uh, the reality is uh, uh, Donald Trump playing to an evangelical base, um, making that announcement, all three parties in, in, in Canada are also very mindful of the uh, domestic votes at stake and uh, uh, you know I, I, I the conservatives um wouldn't go anywhere near it they they, they didn't want to touch it they, they nobody asked anything in the house of Commons. they kept going after bill morneau as they have been for what seems like five or six years but um nobody from that party wanted to touch this um until uh, Aaron O'Toole, their foreign affairs critic, was trapped on the uh, stairs yesterday.
1: Yeah, and he climbed right back up on the fence uh, on the mm-hmm. issue, and uh, you know didn't want to take a stand one no, way or the other on we're, this. We're going to
0: discuss it at caucus. There's just you know, there are votes and there is money uh, at stake um, domestically for these uh, all three parties. If uh, if you if you veer too far one one way or the other, and um, you know that's why that's what we're seeing right now.
1: I, I'm always wondering, and, and I, this is always hindsight, I suppose, though, Tim, but, but there are ways that you could approach this, I, because I, I agree with you. I think the, the, the Trudeau government has actually done a pretty decent job of, of stick-handling around Trump and some of his idiosyncrasies, especially when it comes to NAFTA negotiations, and, and Chrystia Freeland, I think, has been pretty open about her criticisms about the way the process has gone, and, and maybe pushing it just a little bit, and I'm okay with that, and and I think the U.S. probably expects that, but they could have actually phrased this a whole lot differently. Simply saying, "Look, we're very concerned about the ramifications of this, uh, and uh, regarding the peace process," because you've seen in the media today. I mean, there are people in the Canadian media right now that think that Trump did the right thing, and think yep. this is this is fabulous. This is the you know it's about time somebody stood up and and did this sort of thing. Well, you know that's their opinion. Uh, but, you know, contradict or contrast that with what's going on over there right now with the clashes, and now that we just re- reported at least one person's dead already and some of the stuff that's going on there today. And there's some people are going to look at this and say, I told you so. And maybe some people like the prime minister and others have to, have to stand up and, and make a bold statement about this.
0: Well, um, we don't know this. Rex Tillerson, uh, the U.S. Secretary of State, called uh, Freeland uh, Christian Freeland the day before to uh, give her a heads up, uh, perhaps uh, Christian Freeland, who is certainly no shrinking violet, on that call uh, may have uh, conveyed uh, Canadian dismay or disappointment. We don't know. Um, uh, the larger question here, and and Christian Freeland dealt with this in, in a quite a, uh, I thought, brilliant speech in in June. You'll recall laying out foreign policy about how. U.S. has uh, uh, abdicated a leadership role mm-hmm. uh, in the world, and so uh, Canada is going to have to have a more sovereign foreign policy and, and speak out uh, on our own. This is a perfect example, in my view, of how Donald Trump is uh, forfeiting any leadership in the Middle East. Yet neither Freeland nor the Prime Minister uh, filled that void, as promised in that June speech, by speaking out uh, with, ab- about a sovereign Canadian foreign policy. So, uh, you know, this would have been... Look, you don't have to go over the top uh, in your criticism, but, uh, you know, Emmanuel Macron in in France called ahead of time to try to talk Trump out of this. Uh, Theresa May, who's under fire in the UK for not rescinding an invitation for Trump to visit, uh, was quite vocal about this in the the House of Commons. Even the the Pope, Pope Francis, uh, issued a statement uh, that uh, much much further than the Canadian statement. So, you know, the other equation, and I know it's a tough one, and and I feel for this government because uh, dealing with the Trump administration is a is a full time job. But uh, thinking that it, that if we don't, if Canada doesn't poke him at all, that somehow there will be favorable decisions from him uh, vis-a-vis Canada going forward, uh, that's a hard sell because uh, the guy uh, is. Um, can be quite impulsive, um, so I don't know that uh, you know being nice and walking on eggshells uh, after he moves, he announces the move to Jerusalem, really gets you anything in the end.
1: I, I don't think I agree with you totally. I don't think there's any indication at all that if uh, that if you acquiesce that he's going to say, "Hey, I owe these guys now." Uh, more to the point, he's probably just going to figure, "Hey, I can push these guys around anytime I want, and they're not going to make any fuss." Uh, Possibly. So if- the,
0: the other point though, I, I should make is. Um, even though he, he appears to be quite capricious uh, at at times, uh, he is uh, that that Jerusalem uh, embassy move was a was a campaign promise. He does um, uh, fulfill campaign promises, uh, and one of his campaign promises was to uh, rip up NAFTA. So you know, forewarned.
1: Well, exactly, and and I'm sure that's obviously weighing in on Trudeau and the cabinet when they're saying, okay, how do we do this? And yes. I'll go back to the early part of our conversation about how they crafted their responses with the the, the phraseology that you were talking about there, like you know what we're monitoring, etc. But I, I don't think they'd be out of line by suggesting that we're very concerned about what the ramifications of this move are going to be, and we're already starting to to see that happening with what uh, the news we're getting out of Jerusalem today.
0: No, I agree with you. Uh, I, I don't see that. You lose anything in a in a diplomatic game if you put out a statement like that, because clearly uh, Canada and this government should be and likely is very concerned about the possible repercussions. Bit of a mystery to me why you wouldn't even go that far, um, but you know some of the other world leaders that we were talking about mentioned uh, they were quite upfront about disagreeing with the decision of President Donald Trump we as we went back to the, the top of this conversation our government didn't even mention the united states or trump um so i mean that's a that's a huge uh, a huge difference and and as i say i think that will be noticed in the region i'm not implying that we're a major player but you know if we're going to do things uh, like try to um uh tamp down uh, the the heated rhetoric uh, with north korea because of, you know canada and the us are going to uh, sit down and see if Canada
1: can play a role.
0: If we're ever going to get back to that honest broker role, we have to be honest. And I don't think uh, th- this response from the Liberal government was particularly honest.
1: Well, and from that standpoint, uh, if there is some some insider information here about being a broker in the Middle East, I, I don't see that happening. I don't think Daniel Netanyahu likes Justin Trudeau very much at all, uh, especially in comparison to the relationship he had with Stephen Harper. Uh, I don't see that there's a a whole big role for Canada to play here where where they can actually sit down with both sides and say, let's try to figure something out here, because I'm not sure that there's a a mutual respect for Canada in that area just now.
0: Well, there may not be. Um, I don't know that, but you raise a good point. However, there's no daylight at all uh, between the Liberal policy uh, in the Middle East and the former Harper government. Uh, The only difference was that... uh, uh, Stephen Harper loved to um, uh, shout it from the rooftops and advertise it in big neon uh, letters where the, the Trudeau government's been uh, much more circumspect about uh, that region. But the, the policies are almost identical. So, uh, you know, in that respect, um, you know, maybe there isn't a role for Canada. And and I've had readers after this column uh, email me and, and suggested we don't have enough influence over there um, that you know, we should be worried about how far we go in a statement because there's going to be jobs at stake if NAFTA falls apart. I'm just suggesting that our statement on the Middle East, if it went a little further, would I don't believe have any impact on what uh, the U.S. Uh, and uh, their, uh, their chief nego- negotiator want to do about NAFTA.
1: See, uh, the U.N. Security Council's meeting on this later on today. Yeah. Is, is, uh, are they going to slap his wrist, too? Uh,
0: I... I, I don't have a lot of faith in the U.N. Uh, or, the, you know, Security Council. I I, I I can't predict what they're going to do, but they often underwhelm.
1: Uh, well, and, of course, don't forget the U.S. is on that council, and they have veto power anyway, so there's no yeah, motion so, going to pass so there. Nothing, nothing can pass. Nothing of the, any consequence uh, that's going to no, go there. would be
0: interesting to see what, what, are, what is said in that session.
1: Yeah, but my, probably a whole lot of nothing when it comes right down to it though. So th- uh, that would be my dad. This has been a bad week for for the prime minister though. I mean, the things did not go well in China. Uh, uh obviously this happened. I mean, he gets back and, and lands back in in on Canadian soil and finds out that one of his ministers is in deep doo-doo once again for making some off comments to uh people with special needs. I uh, I I I guess he just doesn't want to see this he wants to see this week in his rearview mirror I think as quickly as possible.
0: They got uh, they got one more week to go and then uh, the the Christmas break and he can uh, he doesn't have to uh, face any of this uh, presumably until the end of January so yeah I've, you've you've seen this before government's staggering to the uh, the finish line but no I agree it hasn't been a good week the um, um, they oversold uh, prospects of free trade with China before they went quite clearly but you know this is a government that uh, quite often, in my view, um, over promises. And, um, but, Tim, you've been uh, following no,
1: this for years, and that's the thing that shocked me more than anything else. You know how this works. The protocol is is you send your team down there, they do all the negotiations, and the, the, the leaders really are just there for the photo op. I mean, all the heavy lifting's been done. It right. sounds like those preliminary steps never happened in this situation.
0: Well, you you got to wonder, right? Because I, I the Chinese uh, canceling the uh, joint press conference and... Uh, the way the um, Canadian media was treated over there, and, and and in some of the comments about Trudeau in the Chinese media, yeah, you got to think uh, that this might have been a little payback from what they were hearing from Trudeau before he came over, uh, because in their view that uh, that work hadn't been done, and uh, I would suspect there's there would be some. Um, uh, umbrage taken by the Chinese leadership that this guy was coming over to China, saying you know we're uh, we're going to start free trade talks. If if that wasn't the Chinese view, and um, they treated him that way, so um, it, it wasn't uh, it, it wasn't a a good week. Um, but you know that doesn't say that that doesn't say that at some point they do get this thing going. They do talk with China, but it will take years and years and years to bring anything
1: to fruition. Obviously. It's great piece. Check it out in the Star today. Uh, Liberal Caution, risk-cost in Canada, a voice in the Middle East. Tim, have a great weekend. We'll talk again soon.
0: Thanks for calling, Bill. Always good to talk
1: to you. Take care now. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900
0: CHML.
1: Right now, uh, if you have kids, uh, you want to know one thing above all else. You want your kids to be safe. And when they go off to school every day, you want that to be a safe place for them. Well, the Hamilton Board of Education... Uh, has just received results of uh, their latest uh, positive climate survey. And uh, it shows that the number of Hamilton Public Secondary School students who identify as LGBTQ is actually uh, nearly matches the same number of people who do not feel safe in the school environment. It's a direct correlation there according to some of the people that have looked at this study. And it obviously sends uh, uh, some red flags up for the Board of Education. Todd White is the uh, chairman of the board and the Ward 5 trustee at the Hamilton-Wentworth District School Board and he joins us on the Bill Keller Show to talk about the results. Hi, Todd. How are you today?
3: Very well, Bill. Good morning.
1: Good. Maybe to set the so, the scene for this. Let's talk a little bit about the survey itself and, mm-hmm. and how this came to be. So the Ministry of
3: Education, they mandate that school boards uh, conduct a student survey once a year, but they only require school boards sample half of their schools. So with our recent direction a couple of years ago, Uh, we decided that uh, if we're really going to live up to our positive culture and well-being commitment, that half the schools really doesn't cut it, especially if you're going to compare year to year. So we decided, uh, this is the first time uh, last year, to sample every single school. uh, That would be grade fours right through to the end of high school, and uh, asking them very clear questions, uh, more questions than we did in the past, to better understand how they're feeling in their schools. Uh, so that's how this came about, and there's a lot of really good information on this latest uh, survey.
1: You've uh, you've modified the, the questionnaire over the years, too.
3: That's right. So there used to be some other questions, I think, when we reviewed them. They were a bit more vague. Um, I'm not sure they really informed us in, in a positive way where we could really take action. So we've added some questions to the list, uh, particularly the one mentioned uh, the LGBTQ identification question. Uh, so that one... Uh, is new to the list, but really, we wanted to get a strong understanding of, of the student response. And the plan is to carry the same survey over now year to year with all students, so we actually can compare year to year um, where the questions don't change. And you know, from a scientific perspective, we can actually compare apples to apples.
1: All right, let's let's talk about some of the results. And, and kudos, by the way, for for being inclusive and, and talking about these and changing the questions and and I think making them more contemporary. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and it's interesting uh, the, the number of people that uh, that filled the server, the number of students who filled out the server that actually identified as LGBTQ. Uh, and, but the, the problem here is that number, that percentage number, is almost the same number of a uh, percentage number of the people that actually don't feel safe in the school environment. How do you read that?
3: Yeah, and that's that's a number that surprised us. We're really happy that students were comfortable enough to identify. Um, the percentage is higher than I think the the norm um, if you were to sample uh, a random. Group within you know society, but um, the only couple things to note though is that it wasn't an anonymous uh, survey and it's also a voluntary survey, so not all students were sampled. So from a data collection point of view, there's there's some margin of error there. But with or without that, that's a really high number, and the number of students that do identify, um, there's certainly correlations that we can start to draw between that uh, student safety, acceptance, um, the way they feel in their school, support. So, so we're really trying to unpack that, and from a board point of view, try to better understand how we can change some of our services. Uh, perhaps it could be uh, teacher professional development uh, that could assist. So we're looking at a number of different strategies to to address some of these numbers.
1: And, and again, uh, this is this is a random survey and voluntary, but uh, my understanding is over 5,000 students filled this out. Uh, one of the numbers that jumps out here, and I know this is an area of concern for you, Todd, is uh, the number of students who... Uh, Reported rarely or never feeling safe at school. That number uh, on this survey is 21.2 percent. That's up from 9 percent the year before. That's 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 problematic.
3: Yeah, and that's very problematic. We've been keeping an eye on that number. Um, Mind you, in the past, the question worded itself slightly different, and the options were different. So we've tried to unpack that and actually ask a fairer question. So with that process, whether the problem is getting worse or it's the way we ask the questions. Twenty-one, even nine percent isn't acceptable. When when you get above twenty percent, that's a real concern. That's one in five students. So we need to look at different ways, school by school, to try to understand what are the causes of some of these concerns. And we did ask some of those questions in terms of where where is it that you that you feel unsafe? Um, you could choose the classroom, the hallway, the playground, you know, things like that. And it tends to be in those unsupervised areas, like hallways or or out on the schoolyard, so somewhere where you don't have that. Um, close interaction with a with a professional.
1: How do you do something about that, though? How do you rectify that? You can't be everywhere at the same time.
3: Yeah, I think what it what it, what it, it comes down to is potentially students feeling comfortable to report uh, incidents, um, making sure we have that stronger dialogue with students that they can come forward to uh, a caring adult that can address some of their concerns. Um, some of it, as well, is is really. When it comes down to it, the communication and relationship piece, and and there are other questions we ask about ask students uh, whether they have uh, access to a caring adult or feel there is a caring adult they can turn to, and you start to see a correlation there as well, where a student who might be bullied or feel unsafe at the same time doesn't feel that there's someone they can they can speak to, so that there's a real correlation there as well.
1: All right. From a, a staffing standpoint, Todd, how do you how do you look after that? Is are you are you comfortable with the training that goes into this? That uh, that if somebody does approach a staff member, that uh, that they're qualified and able uh, to, to be able to handle whatever may come up.
3: Yeah. So one thing we're looking at, and it's a number of different types of uh, professional development training sessions. But right now we're looking at diversity training. So when we go back to the LGBTQ or some of the other types of bullying that really are um, physical characteristics or uh, identification uh, issues with students, um, there there really is that diversity training that helps staff um, hear students and hear and understand their concerns. And one thing we did in this survey as well that you wouldn't see um, in a a board-wide report is that we actually measured the numbers uh, school by school as well. Um, So you see the board-wide trends, but we can actually ourselves, behind the scenes, go school by school and better understand if one school um, has a a predominantly high number versus another. So we don't want to approach this as just a board-wide, 100-plus school approach. We want to approach it where each school has its own action plan addressing what they heard from their own students.
1: Well, with those numbers in hand, are there schools within the system right now that do have uh, more of a problem than others?
3: Oh, absolutely. So you would the numbers would vary, just as you would imagine. So there might be schools where um, different types of bullying are more pre- prevalent, um, or bullying in general might be more prevalent. Uh, other schools where it's not much of a concern, So and they might have other concerns and issues that we'd want to respond to. So it, it, it really varies school by school, but each school has its own uh, action plan that they develop near the beginning of the school year. And that's why we decided to do the survey with all schools. We want each school to have their data. This isn't just a data collection exercise because the ministry tells us to do it. We really wanted the principals and the teachers at the schools to understand what their students are saying so that way we can respond accordingly.
1: There was a survey that came out a couple of weeks ago that seemed to indicate that, uh, that suspensions were up in some areas of the board. Uh, is there a correlation between this survey and that one? In other words, is that a response to the, the amount of bullying that's going on?
3: Yeah, it, it could be. The categories are a bit vague, and we've been mentioning that for a number of years. I think, as a board, we're looking at suspensions. I think they were up about three or 400. Uh, I think the total number was around, uh, I think it was about 3,000. Um, it sounds like a lot, but it's on par with where it used to be. Um, it used to be much higher, actually, um, kind of leading up to the year 2010. But there's been a lot of progress in terms of suspensions. But there is there is potentially a correlation. But when you look at the different categories, um, there's a bit of an increase in violence uh, or or fighting. Uh, There's an increase in bullying. Uh, So we we do see a bit of a correlation, but I still think while the student survey now is, is very accurate and and beneficial. We have to do the same thing with our suspension data, and we could do a bit of a better job before we start making too, too many assumptions.
1: But I- if that scenario develops, and clearly it seems to be doing it in some schools, and you mentioned that some worse than others, uh, are, are suspensions, in other words, is punitive action, the first course of action here, or is intervention uh, followed first?
3: Oh, uh, It's definitely intervention. So we have progressive discipline. There's a number of strategies that have to take place place first. So um, sitting down with the students, uh, we work through uh, a number of different strategies with students. We know that just simply suspending a student is, is more punitive, as you described, um, but does the student really learn from the instance, or are they just returning to school to then have the same issue again? So this is where we need to take those steps appropriately to make sure that students really understand the impact of what they're doing. And and it is it does take quite a bit of time. And that's where... Uh, having the proper training with, with staff and teachers are an important aspect of this plan.
1: There are, are some numbers here of concern even in the elementary system, and you mentioned this is actually in that elementary system starts at grade 4, uh, but more uh, a, a, a very concerning number of, of bullying incidents there. Uh, and my understanding is from the survey that they tend to be more physical at that age than, uh, than, than cyberbullying or some of the other things you might see at the high school level.
3: Yeah, that's right. So at the elementary level, that's a much larger uh, concern, and you actually see the bullying number much higher. So is that playground was, stuff then? Yeah, yeah. It tends to be yeah when you when you see when you ask them where the location might be, it tends to be playground um, outside of the school, not not in the classroom per se. But the number was quite high. I think it was just over forty percent. I think it might have been forty two percent this year. Mm-hmm. So so that's a, that's a real issue as well. Um, from that level, though, we, there are supervision techniques that we can. Um, deploy and and exercise at our schools. So that's something that I think is very important. You see the number as as students mature, uh, you know, you see that number go down. I think it's about 28% when you hit the high school level. Um, So we really have to, once again, not have this sweeping strategy for elementary and then second or for all students. But even grade by grade, we have to look at the numbers because you can't assume that what a grade 4 says is the same as a grade 9 or a grade 12.
1: Are you comfortable with the numbers? You mentioned this is voluntary, and, and, and there's always a concern here that, that you know, people are going to be forthcoming with information, especially as some of the younger students that may be filling these things out, to actually have a grasp of what they're talking about here vis-a-vis bullying and, and, and things of that nature. I, I mean, the numbers that we've talked about are high here. Uh, are, are you comfortable that that's a, le- a legitimate picture, a snapshot at this time? Or is it a better or worse than, than maybe these numbers seem to indicate?
3: Um, I, I would say it's, it's reasonably accurate. Like I said, it wasn't a scientific survey. So you might see students that are impacted a bit more encouraged to volunteer that information, although it could be the reverse effect where they're actually afraid to volunteer that information. Mm-hmm. So you kind of take it with a grain of salt, um, but at the same time, really what we're looking for, whether it, and then this is where it's not just about this one survey. We revamp the survey so we can compare year to year. So we're we're obviously concerned about the numbers, but we're also concerned about the trends year to year. Because our goal in this isn't just to report a number, it's to then next year when we do the same survey, make sure those numbers are, are dropping where we want them to. And that would indicate to us whether our strategies that we're using are, whether they're effective or not. So so that's really the, the the goal. So this is really a baseline year. So it's really hard to compare to the past, but we wanted to get this done once and for all. So that way, in future years, we can actually see if our strategies are working. And, of course, we're going to change our plans if, if they're not.
1: How prescriptive are you with the answers on these? I mean, when you talk about these high numbers of bullying instances, uh, do you do you try to drill down and find out exactly what it is uh, based on ethnicity, uh, uh, sexual orientation, etc.? Do, do you have that information available?
3: Yeah, yeah. We have questions similar to that where we want to ask students, you know, what type of bullying? Um, so when we talk about different types, it could be based on their appearance, um, their, their, you know, sexual orientation. It could be, um, just simply, you know, their size or any, anything else, you know, and that would all fall into those appearance categories. And you, it could be religious bullying. There could be a number of different areas, but we have that, that, that pretty, uh, well-developed list that allows students to check those, those boxes off. So we start to better understand you know, what types of bullying are occurring in our system. And as, as the years go by, you see different items, you know, jump up the list, particularly with cyberbullying and online bullying that, that we're keeping an eye on as obviously technology changes.
1: The obvious concern here is is safety of the students, but over and above that, we also know from other studies that have been done over the number of years that uh, if, if they're in an environment like this where they don't feel safe, where bullying is, is prevalent, especially in their particular lives, uh, that can have an impact—a uh, huge impact—on academic achievement or lack thereof.
3: Well, and that's right. You could see an outgoing student um, turn into you know someone who, who's who's far less you know as a result because they're not comfortable speaking out, participating. When you look at bullying, and you look at some of the definitions of bullying, it's really students changing their behavior as a result of of someone that might be picking on them or, or bullying them. So. Students really, it really impacts a student. Any parents that have a a student that's been bullied, uh, you may not know exactly the details, but you can read their body language pretty clearly. It affects your social social, uh, um, uh, behavior. It can can cause uh, concerns with student achievement. There's a lot of ramifications that are very, very concerning and have huge impacts on students that sometimes are, are forgotten.
1: Well, I know that uh, you were in here a couple of months ago uh, with the results of last year's survey and talked about some of the modifications to protocol uh, that were a result of this. And I look forward to that discussion uh, with you and Manny and others from the board uh, in the weeks ahead. Thanks a lot for this today, Todd.
3: Yeah, thanks a lot, Bill. I appreciate it. Have a great one.
1: You too. Todd White, of course, Chairman of the Board of the Hamilton Board of Education.
0: The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.